Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. The term blended family brings to mind some combination of parents and caregivers sharing the responsibility of raising children. Parent, step-parent, co-parent, grandparent, these are words to describe the roles that adults play in this configuration. But what about when one of those adults is no longer living? What term do we give them? Ann Gudger was pregnant with her son Jake when her husband Kent died in a car crash. Years later, Anne married Scott, and they had a daughter, Maria. For Anne, Kent very much remains the third parent in their family. She raised both Jake and Maria with stories and everyday details related to him. Kent is present in words, but also in his actual items that are still boxed up in part of Anne and Maria's life today. Anne is an author and has written essays and stories about the early days of grief, parenting Jake with the help of her parents and siblings. She's also written about what it was like to fall in love with Scott and start their own family. Maria grew up not only hearing stories about Kent, but with an understanding that grief can happen to anyone at any time. Most of all, though, she thought it was super cool to have so many adults in her life. Her mom's parents, her dad's parents, and Kent's family, too. Fast forward to the start of the pandemic, when Maria and Anne found themselves drinking a lot of coffee and talking about grief. Grief from death, but also from losses associated with the pandemic. This led to the creation of a Facebook group called Coffee and Grief, which quickly grew into public readings over Zoom called Coffee Talk. For these readings, writers are invited to share a short piece on anything related to grief. Through this work, Anna Maria created a community made up of people from around the globe who want to connect about grief. You can find links to their Facebook group in the show notes. Okay, here's my conversation with Anne and Maria. Anne and Maria, thank you for coming on Grief Out Loud today and being so patient with how long it took us to get this interview scheduled. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Oh, we're just so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you so much. Anne, let's start with you. You are a writer. And something that really stood out to me is you write about how grief brought this whole new language into your world. And it made me start thinking like, what are three words that you would use to describe your first husband, Kent, who died? And are they the same or different than words you would have used to describe him when he first died? That's a really good question. Um, it's, and that's an easy one. Like he was super smart, really funny, and always kind. And I'd say that though that wouldn't, that has never changed for me over all these years. That he continues to come through in those in those three ways really strongly for you. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And you know, I see it so much in my son. And I'm like, yep, that that came from your dad. I was thinking too, when it's uh, you know, a partner or a spouse who dies, oftentimes they carry like half of the intellectual load 
in a relationship or in a partnership. I wondered where were there gaps that you once he died were like, oh my gosh, I have no idea how to. This was always Kent's thing that he did. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's part of, you know, we weren't, he was only in my life for five years, right? So it's really different from people who lose their partners after a long period of time. Yet still, you know, there were definitely things that he took care of and things that I took care of and things without him, I just felt totally lost. And he was a physicist. And so I'd always said like, you're going to be able to explain all the things to the kids, right? When kids go, why is the so-and-so you're going to actually be able to explain it. That is going to be so awesome. And then he died. Right. And I was like, I don't, I'm not going <laughs> to, Oh, I'm going to be like most parents that I don't know how to explain the, you know, the physics of a rainbow or whatever it is. Right. Kids have so many questions. And that was one thing I, we'd always joked about, like, I will hang handle the language stuff. Cause that's, I'm a word person and like all the mathy science stuff, that's going to be yours. Um, Those were his volumes of the encyclopedia. Absolutely. <laughs> that were be part of the parenting. <laughs> <laughs> and then Maria, you grew, even though you never knew Kent, you've grown up with grief as kind of part of your family's existence. And I, I wonder for you, like, what are some words, three would be great, that you would use to describe grief? Say in general, I always say grief is guaranteed. It's always life certainty. And that it one of the few things that connects people in our humanities. With Kent, though, with what he left behind, I almost feel like I still know Kent through the physical stuff he left. Because you could see how smart he was in his organization of boxes and slides and extension cords wrapped up in <laughs> toilet paper holders. <laughs> and all these, these traits that... Like I knew him through his things. And that we always talked about him. Yeah. And we always talked about Kent as a kid and growing up. Yeah. I've often referred to him as the silent third parent, right? Because I just always wanted Jake to know that it was Kent's intention to be here and be dad. And then everything changed. You know, family's what you make it. He's just always been part of our family. It's hard to like really to tie it down because while being part of the family, it was also never like, you kids have to remember, right? It wasn't, I didn't, we didn't raise them with this, this sad, this deep sadness, like, no, we must always remember, you know, we didn't take them to the cemetery on the regular, anything like other families might choose to do. But it was, I just always wanted them to know that there was this other person who loved them from afar and was part of our family. Maria, I've got one other out of the blue questions for you. So you can pass if you don't want to answer it. But I was just thinking like growing up with that, the way you're describing it, it's almost like the fact that somebody can die, the fact that someone really important to your mom and to your brother did die, that grief is expected or going to happen. I wondered if you noticed feeling different than other kids your own age growing up by having that understanding or that perspective that that many kids don't quite understand or grow, uh, grow into until later in life. I'd say it was different because I didn't experience death as a kid. We talked about it, but the first death experience was probably my grandpa. I just know as a kid, I was like, this is so great. I have all these grandparents and aunts and uncles. Like my mom's parents are divorced. So I had two sets of grandparents from her. I had my dad 
had well his mom and then his stepdad technically but we would always talk about his dad who had died and then my brother he had his aunt and uncle that were just like my aunt and uncle so I remember being on the playground telling kids like I have such a big family and I it just seemed normal and like I'd be like I have all these great grandparents and aunts and uncles and all these and it and then I'd be like oh you don't have that for a lot of other kids but I think I wrap my mind, my mind more around it as like divorce and remarriage and all that versus just from death. Jake's aunt and uncle were just like my aunt and uncle too. Like we never differentiated the families. Yeah. Interesting. Almost as if like the loss led to the gain of this bigger family and this like network of people and support that you had. Yeah. I, I didn't understand like my family in Colorado wasn't my blood family. Yeah. They were just our family. And then like when I try to draw the family tree, it didn't necessarily make sense because <laughs> they don't, they aren't on the family tree. Right. Yeah. But they, they were as much my aunt and uncle as my mom's sisters and my dad's sisters and all that. You had an Aspen Grove, not just one big oak tree with a lot of branches. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It's really true. I'd be like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to Denver to see family. Oh, well, how are they, how are they related? And if people don't know, didn't know our story, I'd be like, that's my sister-in-law. Because <laughs> we're all one big family. And in not always a common result when a partner or a spouse dies, oftentimes there can be a pretty big disconnect or a split with their family of origin. So it sounds like a, a bit of a unique experience to say, stay so connected to Kent's family too. That's what I understand from other people's experiences. And I'll say like, for me, it was especially important because I was pregnant with Jake when Kent died. And I, it really mattered to me that he stayed connected to that family. In, in the beginning, that was my motivation, like making sure that my son could stay connected. And of course, the benefit was that we all stayed connected. You know, I wanted him to know what was the other side of the family that he came from. When he looked at my short squatty feet and he looked at his long, narrow feet, they didn't come from me. Right. So like when he was little and we were with aunt Sherry and he's staring at her feet, I'm like, uh-huh, <laughs> that's where, that's where you got those feet. And in your writing, you also detail all of the like really painful what ifs and if onlys that you wrestled with after Kent died. And those are so familiar as well. If only I had done this, if only I'd called, if only I'd asked him to come home or come home five minutes earlier, this, I could have stopped this or that it wouldn't have happened. And in your writing, you say, I learned to start asking better questions. And that sort of caught me. I was like, Oh, that's, that's curious and fascinating. And I want to hear more about that. Ah, oh, well, I mean, you know, cause you've done this with a lot of people like that, those, the what if, what if, and if onlys can torment and haunt for a long time, right? Cause there is that feeling like, oh, if I just done one little thing differently, I could have changed the outcome. And that is something that we'll never know. That is something that I will never know. But for me then, like I got to a place where I started, one of the things I started asking myself was like, what if that was right? What if this was right? What if 36 years was the right amount of time for him? What if that's what he got in this lifetime? And I was blessed to be part of it for five years. And in, in changing, it's like that changing from why is it happening to me to why is it happening for me? It was just that kind of thinking that helped me 
not stay in the, like this, this thing, this horrible thing happened to me and just needing to ask those bigger, like I'm a big believer in taking the long view, the older we get, the more philosophical we get. And, and in taking that long view, I could start to let go of being hard on myself for not having been powerful enough to make a different outcome. Right. And to just see that this is, this is what happened. And so now how am I going to move forward? And I don't know if that answered your question or not. Absolutely. And it makes me think too, that, you know, you've mentioned a few times your son, Jake, who you were pregnant with when Kent died. And that's a situation where you needed to be powerful. You needed to parent Jake when he was born. And I wonder what it was like to be parenting and raising him with that grief being so prominent and raw. It was really hard, right? The truth is that it was really hard. When you have such a big grief, when you have such a big loss, it undid me. I couldn't, oh, this is a hard, like, I couldn't pretend like, oh, the, it wasn't a small thing that I could just like grab my bootstraps and be okay and power through. It just so completely undid me. And I allowed it. I, I really am a firm believer that part of my, part of my healing and getting to get to the beautiful sides of grief is because I so allowed the hard parts to just be with them. And thank goodness for my family. Like at that time I lived close to both sets of my parents and my sisters, and they just all really jumped in and helped me, especially through that first year of Jake's life. When Jake started talking, he called me mama and he called my mom, mama. (laughs) (laughs) And it just always, it was so sweet. And it cracked me up. I'm like, yeah, we spend a lot of time with these people. (laughs) And I was super grateful for that because they really, my family really did step in and hold me up at the time that I needed them to. It makes me think sometimes about the situation of being able to let the grief be as strong as it needed to be or as loud as it needed to be and to to be with it in that, that there is oftentimes an element of, I don't know if privilege is the right word. I can't think of the right word of it right now, but um, a little bit of a privilege where there's enough logistical support around someone so that they have the time and the space to do that. When I think of other, maybe folks who don't have that level of logistical support day to day, there's no time, you know, to be able to even let that grief be there. But then sometimes the grief is, it doesn't, the grief doesn't wait for the right time. It just shows up anyway. So that's not a full thought. One of the things I've definitely learned from my mom is like, when there's grief in someone's life, you help that person, right? So whether that's driving them somewhere, bringing them food or whatever, like you do what you can, whether they're family or friends or a random person. Mm. Um, so you take some of those things off of their list so that there might be some more spaciousness for the emotional experience to exist. Yeah. And just the base, you know, the very basics of like transportation, food, so that they can just be with themselves and with whoever they need to be with. Yeah. Yeah. Maria has seen me and helped me make a lot of meals for families in need. Right. Cause I, I think that's really, I think it's really important. I was lucky to have my support system live close. Um, I will, I'll, I'll always appreciate that. My younger sister, my younger sister, five years younger than me stepped in and was my birth coach. Right. And she, and, and when we got older, I'd look back and I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's crazy. she was only 23. She'd never been at a live birth and here she was with me and her 
out bringing her nephew into the world. And actually my mom got to be there too, which was a beautiful thing. The other kind of like long game realization that you've written about is the idea that moving from this place of like, like wishing so much that Kent hadn't died and like the injustice of him dying and then realizing if he hadn't died, you wouldn't have met your second husband, Scott, or had your daughter, Maria. And I just think about that's got to be some intense cognitive dissonance when that realization first starts percolating up. And I, I wonder what that process was like for you to come to that recognition. Oh, man, <laughs> that, it's that's it's it's huge. You know, like every like so many things, it's not a it's not a light switch, right? It didn't happen all at once. And and Scott and I talk about this plenty, like there was, def- was definitely a phase of our relationship in me getting to know him and us being together where I could still imagine Kent walking through the door. And then that just not again, not instantly, but just, that just got quieter. Right. And then there, and then, then we had Maria, which was awesome. And now we have our, our, our family of four. And, and we would still joke about that. I'm like, okay, like if can't walk through the door now, it might be a little awkward. Right. But we'd figure it out is one of the many things I love about my husband is his openness about all this, um, which really stems from his, his own losses. His father died when he was only 16. Uh, so he came to, to me and our relationship and our family with already a tenderness and an understanding. And, and to this day, like he'll say, he never felt threatened by Kent. He always felt very the same, like to be inclusive see if I can say this without crying. So to the point, like when Jake got married a couple summers ago, Scott's first toast was to Kent and it was beautiful. I was definitely crying. Like not everybody would do that. He's just really a fine human being. And I think you really touched on the important piece of that, of how often someone's grief, which is a representation of their love can be threatening to people who are coming into new relationships and it's why it's a never-ending conversation at Dougie Center of what is it like to date again after a partner or a spouse dies because it can be so tricky and can go in some really beautiful directions as you've experienced with your husband Scott and it can go in some very painful directions when it when someone's grief isn't met with that acceptance oh it absolutely can I mean I um I I love the Dougie Center I love what you all do um I was in a support group for I don't know, a handful of years after Kent died. And, um, and, and I, you know, we got to hear all of it in that group. Um, and what we had in common is that we were all young widows. So we were all under 40 and we all had children and I was the youngest and Jake was definitely the youngest. Most of the kids were elementary school and, and middle school age, but it, it's true. I mean, it's, it's a very different experience dating when you've been widowed, whether you're whatever stage you're at. Maria, this makes me think of you as well and what it was like to grow up knowing that your mom had another life before you or another family life before you. Yeah, but I think it's a lot of kids don't think about like their parents pre-life. And we were kind of talking about this before we came on here, but like I probably know as much about Kent, his life before kids as I do as like my mom's sisters in their life before me and my Jake being kids really. Cause we talked a lot about Kent and my dad and like 
you don't know the stories unless you're there or somebody tells them to you. I only know about my mom's kid life and growing up because of the story she's told me. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> I don't really have an answer to that question. <laughs> That's quite all right. <laughs> well, no, I just, I think for anybody, it's hard to imagine, you know, it's like, it's hard to imagine that your parents were kids when you're little, yeah. right? That, that, that comes as, as you grow up yourself, um, you know, and we I, didn't, we didn't make this hard line of like, this is how it was. And now this is how it was before. And now this is how it is later. So I think that also makes a difference. Yeah. And like my brother was always around from the time I was born because I'm younger and he was just my brother. Like it wasn't anything different about it. Um, It maybe only got weird. Like when he started growing and he's six foot tall (laughs) and my dad is five, eight and my mom's five, two. And then people were like, what, what's with your family? I'm like, I, that's just who we are. Like, (laughs) must have gotten different genetics because he does have different genetics that's really true when he got tall people would regularly ask like where'd jake get his height right and um and depending on my mood or if how much i knew that person or what i wanted to share in my story a lot of times i'd go from me right Mm -hmm. and like make a joke because i am five foot two (laughs) um and there are tall people in my family uh, but really that is more than likely from the newberger side and you know, again, depending on who it was and what kind of space I was in, I would, I would share some of our story, but it's such a, that was like a huge thing for us, right? Cause people meet you and they see what they, they see what they see and they make up the stories they make up about it. So, you know, we moved to Portland when Maria was just a tiny brand new baby. So we moved down here and now we're a family of four and people see mom and dad and these two kids. I'm like, Oh, no, we're more complex than that. <laughs> it's reminding me how much grief can make small talk real sticky. Yeah. You know, just these average day-to-day questions people ask. Sometimes that answer is much more complex and complicated than people are expecting or that you're expecting to have to answer when you're just, I don't know, going to get some coffee in the morning or heading into the grocery store. And then, oh, I wasn't ready to like tell you my whole grief backstory. It's really true. And so then you get to decide like, how am I sharing it? When am I sharing it? You know, when we first moved down here, we literally were at the park and my, one of my sisters was here visiting to help me unpack. And another mom in the park kept saying about Jake, cause she'd met Scott, how much he looked like his dad. And I was just like, Oh, <laughs> like, I, I'm just here at the park, man. I'm not ready to have this conversation. <laughs> and my sister, Aunt Lisa, she like looked horrified. Like you're not going to what? And I just kept saying, yep, he looks like his dad. Cause that's true. Right. And then later my, my poor sister, I'm like, it's okay. I'll, I will, this, this just reminds me that we're in a new place. People meet us as they meet us and I get to share it when I'm ready to share it. Yeah. That you get to have some uh, choice and control over that narrative. You don't have to just answer every time someone asks you any question that's got maybe a, a deeper answer to it. And you all have, have said like telling the story a few times uh, just in the last couple of moments of this conversation. And it makes me want to talk about the venture that you started at the beginning of the pandemic, where you created uh, a Facebook group called Coffee and Grief Community, which led to these monthly readings called Coffee Talk. And can you talk a little bit about like what inspired you to start it and what what it's been like? Like, do you want the whole story? 
It was Maria's, it was Maria, <laughs> Maria's great idea. And so I'm going to let, I'm going to let her start here. Uh, I was actually taking a class for business building um, and for to build my horse business, but whatever. And the uh, um, pandemic started and I had nowhere to use those tools was where it actually came about. So we were stuck. My mom was living with us in this house and we were stuck inside doing March 2020 things of worrying about the world and figured maybe we should share our conversations, which are often around grief with other people. Um, so I had been challenged in that business group to build a Facebook group and building one around horses just did not feel right at that point. I don't even know. Like, I don't even think we started thinking we were going to build a Facebook group. We just talk too often, often about grief and not even labeling it grief, but, you know, philosophy of life and all that. So we started Coffee and Grief Community and it built to like 450 people in a few days. So, but that was mostly our friends on Facebook who we love, but that's how we started was with our friends. She's done many readings and writerly things in her life. So we figured why not have, you know, Zoom readings. We started once a week, which was a lot, um, but people had nothing really to do at that point. Um, and that was kind of the beginning with people in the Facebook group, sharing, talking, writing, posts. Well, really like the first, so I am super lucky to be part of the Portland writing community. And I participate in three different writing groups. So literally the first three coffee talks were my three different groups. I'm like, you all are doing, you five are doing the first one, you five are doing the second one. And then that gave us a little room to breathe. And I started reaching out within the community. Um, and we always invite people if they want to come read to just reach out to us. And I'll have to say in the now two years that we've done it, um, mostly it's curated writers that I'm connected to. And then it's just been this beautiful I don't want to say that, like this beautiful web, right? So that then other writers who I know who I've asked them and they've sent their group of writers to us. It's really exciting to me when we have people that like, I don't know at all, right? Just to be able to see how we've grown. One of the beautiful things about Zoom is we're all over the place, right? It's really rare that we have a call that all the readers are from Portland, like almost never. And we've had listeners on our last call, we had somebody call in, zoom in from England to hear her person read, right? And I was like, ah, this is why I love Zoom because we get to be connected in a different way. And I think it was really, it was huge, especially at the start of the pandemic when people were looking for other ways to connect when they felt so disconnected at home. Like, how do we come yeah. up with coffee and grief? <laughs> we're trying to read this I know we were talking about that this morning. Oh, how did we come up with our name? So we really kind of did it fast. It literally was us like in the kitchen, in our pajamas, drinking coffee and like, oh, cause to me, like we love coffee, but it's more that idea of like, grab, grab your coffee and let's talk. And so that, that's, that's kind of where the name came, came from. And that like act of love of like getting somebody a warm cup of coffee. I never went to my grandma's house ever without being offered a cup of coffee, uh, even from being a kid. And it was just always something in our family that when you come over, you're going to have some coffee or some tea or something. We're going to sit around and chat some. Yeah. 
It seems to go back to what you were saying earlier, Maria, of how you've learned so much from your, from your mom about how to care for others who are going through grief and that there's no way to like pull that apart, that we're still, even in the name, coffee and grief is still conjuring up that idea of caring for one another in our grief. Are there any parameters for the types of readings that people are offering at these gatherings? It's six minutes in length. <laughs> That's the parameter. We've heard really a ton of topics. So death of a beloved, kids, loss of self, loss of jobs, a lot about the pandemic. What was the one with the lady? Uh, oh, a very interesting lady who was talking about the grief of not being able to have children. I think of her a lot of the different grief topics we have. Dementia. We've dementia. Had we've dementia. had a lot of dementia. Really just, I've kind of summarized grief as, it's like that expectation between what you expected your life was going to look like. And then there was an event that happened and then life happened a different way. And the feeling of that disconnect. So that can be over something small events or large events. The parameters are like this. It's a, It's got to keep it to six minutes. And I always just tell people it's on grief, like whatever that means to you. Um, and in doing that, we've just heard this really broad range and like, come hear a coffee talk sometime. They're really beautiful. I'm super proud of what we've created and this community that we've created and people who come to listen. It's just like an hour to be together for people to really sh share their honest stories. And just, uh, it makes me want to cry. Like it just touches me deeply every time. And like, I don't, we don't see their pages ahead of time, right? So we always give people the warning that we don't, that I don't really know what people are going to be reading about. And, um, and it will likely be hard just to know that. And really this, we're just starting our third year, which still amazes and delights me. Um, and, and in that whole time there, like, I think there was once that we were like, huh, um, about a reading and mostly they're just like spot on. And it is also for me, like, it's a very intuitive, the way I assemble the writers. Sometimes it's just like, oh my gosh, you're available that night. Perfect. You're on. And, and other times it, I'm just, I'm always delighted at how, uh, there's such a broad range every time without me, without me knowing that ahead of time. It, it seems to really be reflective of the moment or moments that we, the moments that we collectively have been in since the start of the pandemic, which I think really is this idea of broadening the concept of grief to include more than just death losses. And to and I think on, a, on some level, people kind of always knew that, but I think people really like know it now and are legitimizing it in a way that you can have these other losses that come from any type of change or shift in your life that leads to either the road not continuing or a detour or some sort of major pothole you weren't expecting, like anything like that coming along can lead to the experience of grief. Um, so yeah, just appreciating that it's just really reflective of, I think, where we are, a conversation that we're having and need to be having. Absolutely. I mean, that's what we've said from the start. Like it, we both feel really strongly about broadening the conversation around grief, you know, putting a microphone to it because, and people do, I think they've really seen in the pandemic, like, oh, we're having pandemic grief. We're having all these griefs and we're having it collectively, um, which in some ways has made it easier to talk about, right? Or more, I don't know. More socially acceptable. More socially acceptable. I don't know if it ever gets easier. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. That's an excellent reminder. 
As we do head into year three of the pandemic and year three of Coffee Talk uh, readings, what are some of your hopes for where the project's going to go next? (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good question. Um, It is like, I honestly, like I've just been so delighted at its growth um, and uh, and I, I say a lot of times, I feel like it's this beautiful garden that we sort of toss the seeds out there. And yes, we do water it and weed it. However, it's grown because of all the people who participate. Um, and so what uh, my future hopes for it is that we continue to have that same kind of growth. Um, along with the along with the coffee talks, we've added, or we actually have done it now for almost since the start. We also have a, a 30-day writing group called Write Your Grief Out. And that's been really successful. And I just want to continue to see that grow because it's a beautiful thing to, I mean, I always say it's its an honor and a privilege to get to witness somebody's grief and to really sit with them in it, right? And that's so part of what we do and will continue to do. And I like doing it through the readings. I like doing it through writing. I am a writer. So that is a very natural place for, for this to have grown. Yeah. And as, as we can be together in person, we also want to do those in person. Um, up until now, of course, it's been on Zoom. So listeners who want to connect and maybe get involved in a reading or attend a coffee talk or just be part of the Facebook community, what's the best way for them to reach out? Right now, we're pretty much all on Facebook. So it's Coffee and Grief has a Facebook page that will post links to the coffee talks. And then if they want to be involved or they can write things too, they can be on coffee and grief community at coffee and grief community. Uh, we'll post links up there for the monthly coffee talks. They are the first Thursday of every month, but the zoom link continuously changes right now. So you need a, the actual link. And then we also will post links for our 30 day series that happens three times a year. And we also do a free one day writing day before the 30 days. That's a lot of days. And the link for that is also on Facebook, but we're pretty much just on Facebook right now. And we have an email too. It's a coffee and grief at gmail.com. Excellent. Well, listeners, I put all those things in the show notes for you so you can find them. And Anna Maria, yeah, thank you so much for being on Grief Out Loud, for having this conversation with me, for sharing so openly about Kent. And for the work that you're doing and the the space you're creating for people to put their grief into words to share with others who can then feel more connected in their own experiences. Oh, it's just been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. It's just been a treat to spend some time with you today. Thank you so much. And listeners out there, I say it each and every time, thank you for being part of our community for helping the show mean what it does. If there is an episode that you think would be helpful, please feel free to share it with family, friends, your community. If you are listening from outside of the United States, I'd love to hear from you just to know how the show is landing where you live. You can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That is also our website where you can find information about our local programming, our downloadable tip sheets, activity sheets, and all of the past episodes of Grief Out Loud. So thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.